0: Welcome back to the Iceberg of Economics. We are now on part five of nine. Um, we're going to start getting into some more um, crazy heterodox stuff here. Um, some of the stuff we actually covered a lot in part four. So if I'm sure that on some of these, that's why. The first one is the Donahue-Levitt hypothesis, which I did talk about when I discussed Freakonomics. It's really the idea of that Legalizing abortion lowered crime rates due to those who were born into dire circumstances such as abject poverty were never born and so they never grew up to be teenagers who would later commit crimes. And so like what the Don Hugh Levitt uh, hypothesis really goes into is they saw how like starting about 15 to 16 years after Roe v. Wade um, was made law of the land, you started to see a dramatic plunge in crime. And if it's also, it's usually mid-teens or when um, peak age for um, for petty criminal behavior between basically 16 to 24 years old statistically for young men to commit crimes. So they conclude that just less of these future potential criminals being born therefore lowers the crime rate. Uh, this is a controversial in a lot of ways. Uh, pro-life people do not like it because it is a justification saying that um, cracking the eggs are worth making the omelette in terms of like even if like these, li- these people could have become the next great inventors or thinkers or philosophers or businessmen or women. Uh, was it fair to take away their life because our society has less crime? And whereas um, those on the left criticize it because it just caters to stereotypes that uh, those from disadvantaged backgrounds uh, who are more likely to have abortions also happen to be likely to be criminal behaviors, and they don't. It, it fails to. They think it fails to tackle other potential systematic causes of crime uh, are not as obvious. Uh, but yeah, I already talked about that. So let's move on to the next one, which is praxeology, which I is my main beef with Austrian economics. Uh, praxeology is really the idea that um, theory and human action is that people do purposeful behavior not just random behavior or reactionary reflexive behavior based on their circumstances. And how this applies to economics is that because every person alive has a different purpose and different goals, you cannot quantify people in the aggregate. And since you cannot quantify people in the aggregate. You cannot use econometrics or any sort of quantitative models to make predictions or observations about the economy. Every economic theory has to be just judged on its a priori or rhetorical um, merits. And this is really just inherently a rejection of empiricism and the scientific method. Uh, And it's also just, if you want to actually try to solve issues in the economy, wouldn't it be good if you can actually statistically back what you're trying to say? Um, I think this is just a cop-out saying, oh, since people are individuals inherently, we can't make any conclusions about what collect people do on the aggregate uh, because we just rather just philosophize and not have to actually pack up our theories. That's what, And this is somebody who has a pro-market Austrian um, policy perspective on a lot of things, but I mean – I think especially in the age of big data, where you can run back and test your hypotheses in real world circumstances, not just in a college classroom. uh, I think it's a very intellectually dishonest approach. Uh, The next one, and those who are pro-praxeology, feel free to make your arguments in the comments. I have read Human Action, so I, I would happily make this a dialogue. Uh, the next thing um, I would like to discuss on this tier is anarchist economics. Um, surprisingly, anarchy isn't really just as simple as, I don't want a government. There are multiple ways you could have an anarchist society. Um, the two most notable ones, which I'm going to talk about, are anarcho-capitalists, or the ANCAP movement, or um, anarcho-collectivists, which is more traditional anarchism, where you think of the the radical, borderline terrorist movements in the turn of the 20th century, like I think it was an anarchist who shot um, President McKinley. Uh, but with anarcho-capitalism is the idea that you have no government, but you still have a free market, and the free market and business, private businesses, replace all the services that the state would. it um, some services, probably could be done better in the private sector than the government has. But the main flaw with anarcho-capitalism is that there are a few core services that if you had them essentially outsourced to either insurance companies or private security companies, those companies will either conduct M&A with each other or compete with each other or maybe even with violence to gain a monopoly. And if you have a monopoly on... um, violence or, the, or, or guaranteeing security that effectively makes you a state. And then also the other flaw of anarcho-capitalism is that it has to be global because if even if one country just maintains a state and everybody else is anarcho-capitalist, eventually the organization of the state or those places in the world would still operate under a state system will just conquer the ANACAP countries, or the ancap countries will effectively have to make a government and a military to fight off invaders. Um, And that's not even going to other issues. I think the main way to really kind of defeat the argument for anarcho-capitalism is the idea of privatizing security. Uh, And then with courts, there's also a difficulty of that, is that... Who is going to enforce a ruling? I guess your reputation, like a credit score can, but if the cost of complying for the loser is big enough uh, and there's no legal means to enforce, um, that claim, then big losers of lawsuits are just not going to comply. Um, and what about the criminal penal system is the same thing. And then you could also have it in a way that it's not really a free and fair legal system, too. It's very easy to probably manipulate that with whichever the plaintiff or the defendant has more funds will have an advantage of choosing the arbiter. I guess you could use Yelp reviews. I'm not going to get into ANCAP arguments, but the fundamental flaw is that inevitably whoever is in charge of defense is going to consolidate and become a state. And instead of having the federal government be in charge, you have an insurance company. I actually are examples of not insurance company company rule in other places, such as what happened with the Dutch and British East India companies in India and Indonesia. But yeah, that's anarcho-capitalism. It's the idea that there is no government, but there still is a fully functioning free market economy that everybody voluntarily participates in. And, I think it sounds great in theory, don't get me wrong. But I think anarcho-capitalism is the communist of the right. Like it the the difference is that really anarcho-capitalism really hasn't been tried on a major country like for long enough a period of time to see how it actually works. But given just the theoretical flaws of it, it's probably a good thing it hasn't been tried on a mass scale. Um, but yeah, the next one is um, anarcho-collectivism, which is traditional anarchism, which is not just the abolition of government like the ANCAPs want. They also want the abolition of private property. So it's really just kind of complete chaos. There is no there is no ownership. Nobody owns anything. People, if they want to get things done in an anarchist system, everybody has to work together and equally share or figure out a fair way of doing it without nobody having sort of unfair or predetermined claim on any property because in an anarchist system, who's going to enforce property rights? Um, In an anarcho-capitalist system, in theory, you would have have arbitration run by private companies and a private court system and private insurance companies or private security companies Maintain property rights. But in an anarch, a pure anarchist system, there wouldn't really be any of those things because there wouldn't be private industry. So, since there, there is no property, because there is nobody enforcing property rights, there are no property rights. I mean, it sounds to me like a giant tragedy of the commons is how that would turn out. And there have been attempts to try to do anarchist societies. But none of them have really ever worked. Um, I don't really know where I would put... I mean, I think... And also, like, pure communism, like in the most idealized form, would be considered this type of anarchist ideology. The main critiques that anarchists have of Marxism and communism is the whole transition stage, where it requires an authoritarian state to control all the means of production. And that they would never really be able to um, to drop that and that is exactly anarchists were correct about that if you've seen what happened in the history of the Soviet Union and China and other places that did get to that intermediate stage but never really quote-unquote crossed the finish line Uh, now after anarchist economics the next one we're gonna be speaking of Marx is the transformation problem transformation problem is the contradiction between um, Karl Marx's labor theory of value, which is basically the idea that the value of something is based on how much labor it costs to produce it from its raw material state, or if it's a raw material, the amount of labor it costs to extract the raw raw material, versus um, the idea that profit rates tend to equalize among industries, and that Capital-intensive industries tend to have higher profit margins than labor-heavy industries, even if you adjust and take wages out of the calculations. Like, um, that's the, the problem is that, and also companies with smaller, um, labor forces per dollar, um, or more money per or more money per worker, if you inverse it, tend to also be more profitable. Like when a company that requires, if the labor is is the driver of value, a company that spends the most on labor should theory be the most profitable company, but that's not really how it works in the real world. Like big tech companies are a good example of this. Actually, they have some of the lowest amounts of labor per billion dollars of revenue generated and uh, based on Marx's theory of value that really shouldn't happen. Um, that's um, the transformation problem and really um, Marx really tries to factor the account really for this in a variety of theoretical ways that saying that a lot of production has failed to transform the inputs also the fact that the market prices change too that, if something all of a sudden becomes outdated, like for example building a um, a fax machine, so if the cost of making a fax machine is still $50 of labor time, but now fax machines are worthless because nobody needs a fax machine anymore, does that mean that that labor was worth nothing? Or is the fax machine still worth $50? You can see where there's a... Um, a problem here and um, the resolve of the contradiction is really just um, you said every industry um, still receives the same profit in a way that's consistent of labor of value but the price of production is basically a, a sum of mathematical formulas based to try to factor this in but the bottom line is it 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 shows the main flaw in the labor theory of value. Uh, The next thing we're going to be talking about is um, supply-side economics, which is kind of like um, I've been criticizing a lot of people on the left for trying to shoehorn in their environmental or income inequality concerns into economics by creating an ideology that's saying that addressing those concerns are actually the best way to manage an economy. And we can prove it through X, Y, and Z formula. Well, supply side economics is kind of like the right wing version of, I have an ideological goal and I need to build an economic and mathematical framework to justify it. And it's the idea that like instead of Keynesians, whose goal is to um, fix the economy by manipulating demand one way or the other, is that instead, if you want to have consistent economic growth, you make it so that the cost of increasing supply is low, and so therefore businesses will produce more supply. Um, and so, because in supply, there's more supply produced prices fall and therefore inflation drops and therefore consumers have more disposable income and that extra disposable income can be spent in other parts of the economy and therefore drive economic growth by just producing more and more stuff at lower and lower costs. there this sounds terrific and it has worked in a variety of industries uh, I think the problem really with this is that it's the mechanism isn't really perfectly translated. Like the way apparently to create the supply, all these bottlenecks is deregulation, which I do agree that part of it generally does work. If you get rid of a lot of regulations that mainly just slow production without really uh, doing much to resolve the externalities that those regulations were written to um, address. But the other key of it is just lowering taxes. So I say if you lower taxes effectively, that lowers the amount of money you need to make to have the same after-tax profits. And if lower taxes, um, after ta- um, you don't need as much pre-tax um, profit margin to get the same after-tax profit margin. And So as a result, companies will have more capital to produce more supply and can sell at lower prices because you have, um, you have even less money is going into taxes, but there's, what's to say that, and this is the, the issue with trickle down economics really fundamentally is that what's to say that the companies will actually do that with the lower taxes, they're just pot keeping the prices where they're at. Or and pocketing the difference, or using that extra amount of profits to, instead of, to increase supply, to decrease supply through um, buying competitors, and therefore, and you, and then using their higher concentration in the market to cut supply and have a more monopolistic environment. So yeah, it's kind of in theory. And also the other problem is is really not necessarily if this was just cutting taxes is fine if the government cuts enough spending to keep the ba- the budget balanced but my main issue with supply side economics not the idea of lowering taxes it's actually all things equal probably net thing better world for the economy and for individual freedom the problem is you can't cut taxes without cutting spending. It's kind of like Keynesianism in reverse, where Keynesian solution is to increase government spending, but they fail to increase taxes or cut spending on the up cycle, even though they do all the stimulus on the down cycle. Supply side is the reverse. Okay, you cut taxes when the economy is down to stimulate it, but then when um, the economy is doing good, you don't cut the government spending to rebalance the budget or in fact actually to generate surpluses to pay back the deficits generated from the bad times. And that was really the fundamental problem is that Reagan was unable to get Congress to pass spending cuts and in fact Reagan wanted to increase defense spending at this time while cutting um, taxes and therefore he widened the deficits and that has led to our current debt problems. and. As an extension that will eventually be paid, but through, and those taxes will go up. But instead of seeing a higher um, income tax rate on your um, tax return, those taxes will be paid through higher inflation. So it's really just instead of paying, like being honest about it, that's really the end outcome of deficit spending is higher inflation, and that's my critique of supply side economics uh the last two we have here are donut economics um, and super capitalism. Donut economics is the uh, is another environmental economics theory where there's kind of an an opportune zone which is kind of shaped like a donut, which is the balance between economic growth and environmental regulation to keep that growth sustainable. If you have too much, Environmental regulation, and you tighten and you and you fill up the hole in the donut, then um, you get um, an economy that is stagnant and causes a lot of social problems that are far worse than the um, marginally cleaner environment as a result of tightening the environmental regulations. Whereas the other side, let's just say, if the donut is um, environmental relations are too loose and you prioritize economic growth and target that, then the damage of the environment uh, through pollution or climate change or other adverse um, negative externalities of modern industry and economic development, the damage from that, especially in the long term, if you calculate the future value of it, will be much more harmful than the marginal amount of economic growth you get From deregulating environmental policy, and this donut is the ring in the middle between being too restrictive on environmental policies and being um, too loose on um, environmental policies, um, and therefore destroying your environment just for not enough growth to justify it. And then the last one is super capitalism. Super capitalism is a term. Uh, introduced by Benito Mussolini, a speech he gave in November 1933 where he discusses the stages of capitalism where you had early stage capitalism called heroic capitalism where it was the building and foundation of modern industry. And then static capitalism is when those industries became mature and um, it, it, the, the gains translated into mass society but at the same time is kind of unevenly distributed and then you had the final form which is decadent capitalism which is the idea is that it's this capitalist economy that is just really designed to sell to people's worst instincts and push mass consumption at the expense of actually like promoting human flourishment. It's really super capitalism is just like the macho, fascistic way of saying late stage capitalism, which is this idea you hear a lot about on memes on the internet where, oh, like, capitalism isn't really working anymore. And so they just do these more desperate things to care to the lowest and lowest denominators to keep people spending for things they never wanted to impress people they don't like. Like... A good, like movie that kind of summarizes the ethos of the late stage capitalism anxiety was um, 1998's Fight Club. Uh, what happened with Edward Norton's character and his obsession with furniture until his, um, until he joined Fight Club and kind of let go of all of it. I don't want to. I'm not going to spoil too much of it, but Fight Club is, and the ethos of Fight Club is the same kind of critique of late stage capitalism that. Benito Mussolini had for super capitalism in a way. He wanted a more corporatist economy, which is really one of the roots of fascism where the state and the government, even though the the government doesn't own the companies, um, but the private industry will work with the state to help accomplish the state's goals in one collective body or a corpus, which is where the word corporatism comes from. Uh, That concludes this layer. Um, Now we've kind of gone through the first five of these. um, And layer six is going to get even more crazy. Thanks for watching and stay tuned.